0: Hello there and thanks for joining us here at Lion's Guide where we empower you with the resources you need to reach heightened levels of success in your performance, leadership, and business. On these episodes, we set out to explore the stories of our guests and the lessons they've learned. We also interview various subject matter experts. We review books and other resources also to help you establish clarity, have courage, and lead the way. I'm your host, Dale Wallace, and I'm the founder of Lion's Guide. And on this episode, we've got Chris Bentley, Chris served over 14 years in the United States Marine Corps, serving multiple combat tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan, reaching the rank of gunnery sergeant, which is an E7, before uh, being medically discharged for multiple industries sustained during his years of service. Afterwards in 2016, Chris founded Bellatorum Resources, which was an investment company that specialized in the acquisition and management of oil and gas royalties before shutting its doors in April, 2021, when Chris turned himself in for committing fraud in his attempt to avoid a failure of the business. He now works as a general manager of a nonprofit thrift store to support his family while awaiting official charges and sentencing from the FBI and Department of Justice. In this episode, Chris and I talk about the mistakes and lessons learned from what Chris refers to in the title of his book, burning bellatorum and what led to the loss of $40 million of investment funds, along with much more. It's quite the story and you won't want to miss it. But before we get started, make sure if you haven't already hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss any of our other great guests and content. Also, make sure to head over to lionsguide.com and check out our free resources, including our latest downloads, book reviews, community events, live streams and trainings new courses, discounts on memberships and workshops, and a whole lot more. Especially if you're a business owner who wants to perform and lead at your highest level, head over to lionsgod.com and access our free resources today. With that all said, let's start the show. hey welcome to today's episode of the lion's guy podcast and today i've got on mr chris bentley who is a marine combat veteran entrepreneur author uh a whole slew of accomplishments but you know what's different about chris uh from other guests that have been on the podcast is that chris is currently awaiting charges and sentencing for a bit of his story that he's here to talk about today which uh chris welcome i appreciate you man like i told you before we hopped on here I, i appreciate your courage and uh, transparency and helping others from
1: your lessons learned for this. So
0: real quick, tell us a little bit about who you are and what do you do?
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me on Dale. Um, right now, as you said, I, I don't do much. I, uh, I'm i doing a little bit of business development for uh, um, a media group called NGBN Men's TV and, uh, and their parent company, National Grassroots Media Corporation. But um, before that, I had a company called Bellatorum Resources. Uh, it was 100% veteran-owned and operated. I was the founder and the and the owner, and um, and all my employees were veterans. We focused on investing in oil and gas investments, specifically mineral rights here in Texas. And um, legitimate first few years, uh, wildly successful, extreme, uh, you know, J-curve hockey stick startup rapid growth and success. And um, in 2019, we hit some some uh, challenges, some normal kind of started with some normal business operational challenges that very quickly ballooned into something that uh, I didn't have the runway at, like capital to, to weather the storm. And um, without getting too deep into all the the nitty gritty details about it, um, you know, from 2016 to early 2019, a legitimate above board business. Then when I hit those first hiccups and roadblocks, uh, started doing some some bad, you know, fraudulent accounting and things to kind of keep the lights on. And that, as we know, you know, that started in 2019. Then some industry oil and gas related uh, challenges, you know, kind of industry downturn started happening. And then we went into COVID And, uh, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. And, uh, you know, I'm here to kind of share that story on, um, you know, the, the lessons I learned and, and the nuance behind it. And, um, and I appreciate you offering me that opportunity Dale. Yeah, no, definitely. So let's let's go look a little bit before that. Right.
0: So 2016 is only a few years back. It seems feels like yesterday in some ways, but so what, what about before that? Right. So you're Marine, you know, tell me a little bit about like your background and kind of where you came from to, to kind of get to this part of your career.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm from Texas. I I grew up in East Texas in a little town called Tyler. Um, and I joined the Marine Corps right out of high school. I thought I was going to be a lifer. I joined at 18 years old and, uh, I was in for about 14 and a half years, uh, reached the rank of gunnery sergeant. I did six deployments, um, several combat deployments, several to Iraq, several to Afghanistan, and then a couple of other uh, just, you know, normal deployments like, you know, floating on a ship and hitting ports around the world. Uh, You know, we call them. See, I'm sure you referred to them as like uh, booze cruise or something like right. that, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, it, not much going on on those, and we'd hit we'd hit diff- various ports around the world and have have a good time when we got off the boat. Um, but you know that that was what I thought I was going to do with my life. Well, uh, during the the sequestration and the and the DoD defense budget cuts under the Obama administration, I got medically discharged after 14 and a half years. So, uh, December of 2013, there I am at 14 and a half years as a gunnery sergeant. I, I got out. And so I moved back to Texas because at the time the oil and gas industry was booming and I got a job as a landman for a company down here. So in 20, all of 2014, all of 2015, literally just a few days before Christmas in 2015 is when I got laid off from that job. But I worked for two years for another company in the oil and gas industry, learned a lot. And, uh, you know, when I got laid off, there was some industry, you know, downturns again in 2015. Um, But I knew there was still opportunity. So I started Bellatorum in early 2016. And that's, uh, you know, I had a very short civilian uh, job, uh, you know, experience before starting my own company. So a lot of people messaged me on the side and say, Hey, well, that, that probably has a lot to do with why you failed so badly is that, you had very limited experience as an as, as a business person, you know, working for another company, you know, I could argue one way or the other about that, but there's definitely some validity to that comment. But, uh, nonetheless, it is what it is. I started Bellatorum resources in 2016 and, uh, we did really well for the first few years. So,
0: and I guess like, what would be your response to that? Like the way you see it now cause I don't know that I would agree to that, but, because, yeah. I mean, because you see people start businesses based on their passion and things they're after all the time, and I don't know. What, I mean, just curious what what's your what's your take on it, right? Were you too yeah. short out of
1: the Marine Corps to do something? No, like this? I, I don't think so. Um, I, I think that definitely some of the I did not have the experience, like I hadn't seen an industry downturn in oil and gas yet as a you know, I'd only seen one, which I got laid off for, and I was a low level to mid-level manager at the company I was working for. Right. And so not really a lot of responsibility to navigate a downturn so that there's some validity in that, but my boss at that company who I'm still uh, friends with and, and connected to, um, he always had a saying, he said, you don't have to be a doctor to own a hospital, Chris. And, um, and that you know, stuck with me. And that's true. You don't, you don't have to be a a chef to own a restaurant or any, you know, you could, the list goes on and on. I think I could have sought some wiser counsel on, uh, you know, but that doesn't mean I wasn't ready to be a business owner and entrepreneur.
0: I know you got a ton of books behind you. So I know you're, you're one of those uh, uh, leaders that are readers, as they say. So have you ever read the e-myth? Yes, definitely. Great book that kind of talks about this, right? Like, which is, you know, the important thing to know is that when you own a business, your primary job is business owner, right? Even if you are the doctor that owns a hospital, the minute you own the hospital, you're a business owner. And you, you may still practice as a doctor secondarily, but your primary objective is, you know, owning that business,
1: so to speak. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. The, um, so w- when it came to the Marine Corps, before we r- run too far from that, like what, what, what influenced you to join the Corps?
1: You know, uh, being, a just, you know, some stereotypes are true, man. And Texas is definitely a very, uh, patriotic, uh, pro-military state. So I grew up with that and it was, you know, really only two options I saw getting out of high school is go to college or join the military. I, you know, I didn't, uh, I, I wanted to join the military more specifically the Marines. I, I didn't even talk to the other branches. It was you know, I I was a recruiter's dream, walked in there and just said, Hey, sign me up. They didn't have to talk to me about it or call my parents or, you know, anything like that. I was just ready to go that day. So what was your MOS? So I was, uh, have you heard of open contract? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, yeah. I fell for that, that, uh, scam if you will. But, um, but so which, I, ended which, up-
0: which, which, which <laughs> tell us what that means. I know what it means, but tell us what it means. So
1: so, uh, open contract was like, basically, look, I don't know who, ha, what the, me, the reason for it was or the organization, what the Marine Corps did it for, but it was basically, I just gave, Hey, I just want to be a Marine. Y'all pick my MOS needs of the Marine Corps. Right. Um, I thought that meant I was going to be infantry, got to do, you know, be super cool, you know, Rambo with a gun running around the, the jungle or whatever. Uh, not the case. I ended up being logistics and, um, So, you know, loading aircraft and ships and being in charge of our units, uh, you know, movements and supply and ammunition and all that stuff, transportation. um, And it was a great MOS. I hated it. I hated every day of it when I at the time. But I realize now that it taught me a lot about, you know, managing things and, and, you know, organizations. So.
0: The, uh, yeah, you're the second person in the last five days that I've talked to that (laughs) said they, they just said, I want to be a Marine. I want to open contract and, you know, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and to your point, right? Like basically you can, like most people, when they sign up for the military, they take the ASVAB, you get a score. It's like the military equivalent of the SAT, let's say to, to simplify it, uh, tells us how, Capable you are, uh, if you will, to a degree, intellectual, whatever, and um, and then depending on wh- where you score, you fit into certain job roles. Obviously, you score really high, you have you know, kind of your pick of the litter. Score really low, you know, they'll they'll, they'll make you a, a cook, you know, or whatever. <laughs> nothing against <laughs> my cook, but to your point about the stereotypes, that's what yeah. we always heard, right? Like, you go open contract, you're gonna be a cook or a or, imp, or a, imp, rifleman
1: yeah and and that's what i want you know and it's funny people ask me i dude i scored a 92 on the asvab and they like when people hear my story especially my buddies that ended up being recruiters you know i was in for 14 and a half years so i had friends that were you know we'd be having a beer shooting the shit and that like Dude, you scored in ninety two on the ASVAB. Your recruiter effed you, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> but um, hey, whatever, dude. I I I loved it. I got to do some cool stuff. I, you know, I I spent a lot of time try- time trying to get away from logistics, and in that, I got to be what's called an ETT or an embedded training team member. And I was embedded with the Afghans on one deployment where I was out, not being a logistician, I was actually like out you know, operating and, and doing call for fire and real world mission with the Afghan army. I got attached to MARSOC for my last deployment, not saying I'm a special operator or anything like that, but being a, a logistics guy with a special operations unit afforded me some opportunities to, to do some cool stuff and get some high speed gear and go out on some missions that I normally wouldn't have uh, otherwise gotten to do. So that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, that is awesome. The uh, I mean, as as far as uh, did you do any b billets or anything like that? No, I didn't. The, wow. the,
1: that was the thing about logistics too. Is I guess nobody wanted to be him, so it was always like a critical MOS, meaning only it was only seventy plus percent manned at times. So they had a hard time. So mm-hmm. the good news about that is we got reenlistment bonuses, and they tried to retain us really well, but they couldn't. I couldn't move outside the MOS, so um, you know that was.
0: Yeah. The, um, yeah. And just, again, I guess for people that don't know what I mean by B billet, right. When you're in the Marine Corps, or at least when I was in, at some point in your career, especially if you're a, what they call career Marine, like you're going to stay until retirement or whatever, at some point you're going to be either a recruiter or a drill instructor, um, as part yeah. of your, uh, your enlistment or whatever. So, um, so it's, it's, like I said, it's, 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 I guess a benefit of your MOS that you don't have to end up doing that.
1: Um, yeah so it's, it's and, and I mean, some people love it, right. They end up going to recruiting and then stay there for the rest of their careers. Some people go do multiple tours on the drill field because they loved it. But yeah, I didn't, um, I did not have to do a B-billet. I never got flagged for recruiting. Uh, that's another thing is that, you know, when recruiters sometimes have to go against their, their own will, they get flagged. If their MOS has an abundance of people, like mm-hmm. with the infantry or certain uh, like admin MOSs or whatever, they'll, they can't avoid it. They have to go to recruiting duty.
0: Now, were you married during your service time or?
1: I was, I, uh, I, I'm still married to a woman I married, uh, you know, in 2008 uh, mm-hmm. while I was, I was a staff sergeant when I married her. So mm. towards, you know, uh, I, I had a, quite a few years of not being married while I was in, but the last, um, let's call it, uh, six years of my, you know, about six years of my, uh, Marine Corps time I was married and I had my, my two sons, uh, during those last few years too.
0: Yeah. How was that? You know, cause were you still deploying during that time? Like how was, how was that being a family man in the military and potentially deploy? deploying so on
1: you know that's a i could do a whole podcast or write a book on that topic because i will tell you um i was the most call it a adrenaline junkie or something like that um when i was single um and even you know probably even when i was married until she became pregnant with our first child i didn't really um and I'm not trying to make myself sound like a badass or anything, but I did a lot of stuff. And I also volunteered for a lot of like, you know, deployments or missions. I was always wanting to go outside the wire um, and I never really thought about my own safety. And then uh, when she told me she was pregnant with our first son, I my whole worldview changed, you know, it was mm-hmm. wild. Like I was th- found myself thinking about death. While I was over in Afghanistan, I was like, man, what is Mary going to do if I get blown up here, you know? And like I never had those thoughts cross my mind before. Like I just really didn't care if I thought, oh, if it's my time to go, it's my time to go, you know? But then I started thinking more like, okay, what are my wife and kids going to do without me if something happens? And so that's uh, that's just one part of it, right? So that's it, it definitely makes it harder when you're married and you have kids when you go away for a while, you know?
0: Yeah, no, it's certainly the, uh, what do you think, like, how did you, you know, uh, we talk about the transformation, you know, but what, 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 did it, what did the being in the Marine Corps do for you? Right. As a person, right. I mean, you're patriotic and, you know, good old Texan and, and came Marine and all that, but what, what did it do for you? What, what, what was the transformation like for you?
1: You know, I think the biggest thing it did for me, Dale was, um, it gave me, a healthy self-confidence. Uh, you know, I, you would have to ask people who know me personally, but I don't think it made me arrogant. And I think maybe the level of, um, you know, uh, what what is the word? Uh, the level of insecurity I may have had as a young man or teenager before I joined was such a level that what the Marine Corps did to me is brought me to a very healthy level of self-confidence where it was the right amount for me to then feel like I could do anything without being a cocky, arrogant, like somebody who's, you know, not fun to be around. But I, I did get to a point where I was like, Hey, I can do that or I'll try that or do whatever and, or, or have just a can do attitude. So it really, um, that is probably what I got the most out of it. You know, was thinking that I could do anything because like I, since then, you know, I, I got my MBA at rice when I got out. And I think the 18 year old me prior to joining the Marine Corps would have never thought I could even, why even try to get an MBA? Like, that's not me. That's not the cloth I'm cut from, you know, that I probably would have just relegated myself to, you know, maybe getting an associate's degree or bachelor's degree at some point. But, um, you know, now I've got two master's degrees and, and, uh, and I think the Marine Corps definitely helped me and motivated me to do that. You know, do you think it was like the structure
0: or you're shown your potential or always
1: being challenged? Like kind of like, what, is there anything that sticks out to you that man, a lot, all of the above, you know, when you talk about structure, um, there was some structure, right? Right. <laughs> I think that you can, it depends on how, what, how you're using that word, right? For me, seeing that you had to have a degree to be an officer, that's, you could call that structure, right? That's the organizational structure. So that was, that part motivated me. It's like, Hey, if I ever want to do anything, uh, like if I ever want to be an officer, I got to get a degree. Mm. And when, and, but the Marine Corps, as you know, you know, when I, when you see your officers, you, you see that these are also people that came from all walks of life like you did. And that if they can do it, I can do it. They have the MESEP program and warrant officers and all that. And so uh, I actually was on the MESEP program and graduated officer candidate school while I was in the Marine Corps. But that uh, medical discharge happened after, you know, it was, I think it had way more to do with budget cuts than, um, than anything, but I was on the path of becoming an officer. And, uh, okay. you know, uh, things happen for a reason not to that, you know, th- not where I'm at today, but I think everything happens for a reason. And so here we are.
0: Yeah. That's something. So they had already invested in your, th- like say the mecep which is what Marine enlisted to officer me Commissioning education yeah. program. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I remember that. And so, so you were already through that. And all the way already through OCS, which is
1: yeah. So, you know. the way it works, I got I actually was at the college where I so you get you get your degree, you know, if you get accepted for MESAP, you get to go to college full time and you have to do OCS your first summer while you're at college. Oh, okay. So, I went to OCS, um, kind of further aggravated some injuries that I had, but kind of the general rule of thumb for MESAPs, you know, because we most of us had been through some stuff already kind of beat up our bodies in the Marine Corps as it happens. And so it was like, Hey, just make it through OCS and then you can go get a surgery or do whatever you need to do to repair your body, but just get OCS out of the way first. That way it's smooth sailing, right? All you have to do at that point then is maintain the standards and, and graduate college. And then you commission well, that sequestration and the budget cuts all happened my last uh, couple years at, at Norwich university where I was just kind of finishing out my degree. I got a surgery. I was on limited duty for, you know, a while, like almost a year. And so what happens when you're on limited duty, recovering from a surgery uh, that's fine. It happens to a lot of people in the military, but not during a budget cut, you know, Hey, we're looking for people. I, I joke sometimes I was saying, Hey, if you had an ingrown toenail, you were getting kicked out wasn't that extreme, but it was close. You know, it was like, I saw guys that were super healthy and it was like, they were just finding reasons to get rid of people and at that time. And, um, so I was, I fell victim to that and, and, you know, it's ended up being a blessing in some regards of my life. I mean, getting to spend time with my kids and, you know, coach soccer and do the things that I wouldn't have done had I become a new first Lieutenant in the Marine Corps, you know?
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I get it. The, um, so you got out, um, I mean, how pissed off were you, you know, with regard to that?
1: Dude, I was, I was really bitter. Um, wasn't part of the plan, you know, um, kind of the Marine Corps is, I, I would assume it's unique. It's the smallest branch of the military. I, I can't, I haven't served in the army or any of the other branches, so I can't say it's this way. But you tend to drink a lot of Kool-Aid in the Marine Corps that you think it's like, Hey, you're, you're like, we're special. We're our brotherhood that we take care of our own. Right. But at the end of the day, it's still department of defense bureaucracy. And I was just a number mm. and it's about, it wasn't personal, but I took it personal because as you know, the Marine Corps is very personal. Your, you, your, your leaders know all about your life. They, they have to, to take care of you, to, to support you as a good leader. And, and so just, just the closeness in the Marine Corps at that time, I, I was like, I was kind of a little, I was bitter and I came out with a chip on my shoulders, but, um, you know, I, I got over that and, uh, and I, I think it's, I, I have a lot of gratitude and value on my Marine Corps experience. And I'm glad they ended when they did, you sure. know, like I, I think it was the right time. I was already starting to be bitter politically about, you know, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and how they were being handled. So maybe I wouldn't have been a great officer. I wouldn't have been the type to just to take commander's intent and be a good, good Marine officer and do what I was told, you know, so it, it might've been the right timing. You know, I, I probably would have gotten in trouble for being insubordinate or something had I stayed in. You know? Sure.
0: Yeah. No, understandable.
1: The, uh, you know, so, so you got out and I guess,
0: what was that like? And I mean, were you in kind of panic mode? Was there some sort of grace period that you know, you felt like you had like a soft landing of sorts? And, and and how'd you get into being a landman, as you said?
1: Well, so that's, that's a great question, Dale. Um, and here's why, because no, I was worried about getting a job, right? Like all of a sudden, I'd been in the Marine Corps for 14 and a half years. And, um, you know, at the time. So, so I get out December 30th. Okay. Uh, December 30th, 2013, that whenever you get medically discharged, they put you like one day before the last day of the month. It's at least that's when I was in. So I didn't start my new job until like February. I can't remember exactly, but sometime in early February. Well, I didn't have a job from, you know, December 31st to whatever that first day in February was. And I was panicking. So I took the first job that I got offered. Like, Mm -hmm. so that it was like, I was like, Hey, I can't take this. I can't, um, I can't not be employed. I got to support my family. I need a paycheck, whatever. Right. It was a good job. I got offered a good job. It paid well. And it, it ended up being the right job. I love the work. It was, it, it was great. I, I, again, I believe it happened for a reason, but now looking back and seeing some of the other veterans transition story, like one month and some change is not long to be unemployed after you get out of the, uh, out of the military. So it felt like an eternity to me at the time, but hindsight being 2020, it, it was actually a very short period of time to be unemployed. And it gave me some time to like, Learn the traffic patterns in Houston, the you know the the third or fourth largest city in America with probably some of the worst traffic in America. So, um, yeah, the, the time that I was unemployed when I got out was uh, was probably need I needed it, you know. Yeah.
0: The uh, Did you have to relocate or because of the MSEP stuff were you?
1: Yeah, I was up in Vermont. I was okay. up at Norwich University, which is uh, the oldest private military college in the country. I was mm-hmm. up there and uh, so moved from, you know, nice, su- mild summer weather to, um, you know, and it was snowing at the time up in Vermont to down in, you know, Houston in January it felt like summer in Vermont, you know, so. Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and, and the reason I asked, right, because there's that too, right? You, from the time you get out, like, and you also have to relocate and and all that jazz. So, yeah,
1: yeah, I loaded up a U-Haul and drove down here with uh with my um, my son, one of my sons, and uh, he was my shotgun rider, and uh, we pulled one of the cars behind us on the U-Haul. So it was a yeah. fun trip.
0: I did that back. I did that uh from Pendleton back home to Maryland, you know. Same thing. It's a nice car, car toting behind full full U-Haul. Like across the country, man. It's, it's a good yeah. time. The uh so you know, so that got you into the what what was it? What so what were you doing? Like in the in the land.
1: So business? uh being a landman, it's uh it's not a gender term. it's it's uh short for petroleum land manager. You do basically like real estate slash property management and negotiations specifically for the oil and gas industry. Um, And like it's acquisitions of like, say a pipeline easement. If a pipeline's being built, you're the one that goes and negotiates with the landowners on building the pipeline in their land. You got to pay them a fee for that. Right. And then you got, there's also going to be some work that needs to be done and permits that need to be filed and dealing with various agencies, whether that's water, you know, conservation districts or whatever, just a lot of land usage, uh, skill sets. And, um, so that's what I was doing, acquiring land, negotiating usage, being the, the go-between between between the landowner and the, and the oil company and Mm -hmm. the construction company. And, you know, just making sure that those projects got done smoothly. And, and,
0: and just cause, excuse my ignorance on the industry so is there a ton of like pipelines being laid across texas where there is a ton of like easement type work that you're you're doing that
1: yes there was a ton i i mean i was um if there's like a railroad commission map it you know texas specifically um if you look at it it looks like just a bunch of spaghetti if you looked at all the pipelines on a map you know there's so many of them in texas and you know flowing from refineries to well oil fields to uh different distribution areas, you know, so it's a, it's a complex system. The other side of the job is also getting leases and buying mineral rights. And that's, you know, the skills I learned in that job. And I also did some part-time contract work for another company that then focused on the mineral rights side. And that's when I, that's where I saw the real opportunity. And after getting laid off from my job at GMP land, that's where I focused my efforts was on buying the mineral rights, which produce royalties. And so you can be a landowner, you know, we call it landowner, but it's not the surface land. It's the subsurface. It's the mineral Mm -hmm. rights. And if you're the mineral rights owner, if there's oil or gas coming out of the ground, you get a percentage of that, right? So you can buy and sell it like real estate. You can invest in it, buy it, hold on to it, flip it, or, you know, Adding like adding granite countertops to your house and then flipping it for a profit. The way you do it in our business was, you know, either buying with already before it gets drilled and and you know they have proven it, or maybe adding a diverse little small portfolio together and then flipping the whole portfolio. So that's the game that I was in, and that's what Bellatorum Resources was doing uh, as a business. Um, and that's you know that's what I started doing in 2016 and uh it's a really niche uh segment of the oil and gas industry and it, it can be very lucrative
0: yeah it's interesting uh just through my own private investment you know kind of ventures i didn't even i didn't know anything about this but i recently did And and i guess if, if i said it said it this way maybe this was what you were doing as well which was you know which again like you said like is is like real estate where you know even like buying wells to upgrade them to Mm -hmm. flip them right Is were you similar right like maybe a place that has a known was on a known oil field or whatever and but maybe it's like the well was built in 1980 and you come in and kind of update it and now it has more value and yeah royalties all along
1: so it's it's a similar in the sense of you know we're buying oil and gas assets and flipping them right ours is more passive we're not we're not the guys we had nothing to do with the production so we're Mm. We would do our research on, let's say, what Exxon or Chevron was doing, and then try to kind of buy ahead of their uh, drill bit, if you will, or their their enhancement or improvement of an oil field. We know, be reading and and researching and looking, and then go buy assets based on our what we thought would be a good opportunity. Mm-hmm. But it's extremely passive as a mineral rights owner because you can't control what the oil company does. What mm-hmm. you're talking about. Is a more hands-on approach where, uh, you know, you're you're now a uh, you you may not be the guy actually turning the wrench and going to fix the well, but at, when you're buying a share in a well, you're called a working interest owner, mm-hmm. and you are now basically a shareholder of that project. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, if it needs more money to because they didn't budget correctly, like let's say you bought an interest in a well. And it cost a million bucks, so they raised the million dollars, and they spent it, and realized, oh crap, we need one point two million. You know, we need another two hundred thousand. They'd go back to you and say, hey Dale, I need you to send us your share of that two hundred thousand, which is whatever percentage you bought in the well, right? Yep. And then they could flip it for one point five or two, whatever, down the road, and you'd get your money back and your your share of the profits, you know? Right. But, uh,
0: otherwise be diluted and you yeah. be in a different class of share because you didn't participate. Exactly. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so uh, royalties a little bit more like true real estate in the sense of it's, it's the actual land asset. You get a deed mm-hmm. with a, with a, a legal description, like, Hey, survey number 93 tracked 17 and this, whatever. And you you're the, you're the landowner, the mineral rights owner in that area whatever percentage of the mineral rights zone, that's your, you know, your share of that, the production that comes out of there.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, so the business of Bellatorum that you started was what, based on what you learned working in the industry for a couple of years. And was it hard to get into as far as starting your own business? What made, what motivated you to do that rather
1: than just go find another job? Well, um, so that's, that's a, that's a long story, too, but I'll tell you. So, <laughs> I, you know, um, you know, how I was telling you, I worked for this other company part time doing the mineral rights stuff. Mm-hmm. When I started Bellatorum truly, like meaning the entity, when I got on the Texas, you know, uh, Secretary of State website and created a, an LLC, it was just because you know, you do an LLC when you're a 1099 contractor, you you probably know about this, you know, you you just, it's a tax efficient way of doing business when you're a contractor. So that was the initial reason for Bellatorum Mm -hmm. as an entity, right? It was just me, Chris Bentley, providing services to, as a contractor to these various uh, groups. One group in particular that I did a lot of work for And I just kind of got sideways with them after working for them for a while because I felt like they weren't being honest with me about the deals that we were doing together. And and so I was like, I'm just going to do this hundred percent on my own. I'm going to go source my own deals and I'm going to go buy them myself with my own money. Mm -hmm. So it started out really small in 2016, literally like with my own money. 10, I think the the biggest one I did with my own money was like 30 something grand. And that was all the dry powder I had basically, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of money, so I was just doing really small deals. And then in 2017, I brought on an investor and really started. Then he brought on friends and it, we were just doing really well. And so it spread like wildfire, like word, word of mouth, you know, and I, I ended up going from one investor who gave us like $40,000 or $35,000 his first investment to then later that year, just a few months later doing a hundred thousand his, his financial advisor came in, who was also his friend with a hundred thousand. Some of my classmates from my MBA at rice came in and we had a few, so we had a few hundred thousand. And then the next year we got to several million and about 20 investors. And then later on 40 investors with almost 6 million. I mean, it just grew very fast. Mm. And so by, um, Early 2019, I had about a hundred investors total with at, by May about 28.7 million in, in investor capital. And that's when things started to go south because as we scaled so rapidly, I was growing my team. I went from, you know, just me to about at that time, I think about 21 employees you know, and, and so when you scale that rapidly and you mentioned the e-myth earlier, I had not franchised my business yet in a way where I had SOPs and checklists and all the things that I should have had in place Mm. as I scaled. And so training new people, you know, there were just a lot of mistakes started happening that were way more manageable when it was just a small shop with a small amount of deals. And as I scaled up, those mistakes, uh, I didn't have the bandwidth to manage the operations of the company. And I'm not making excuses. It was just like that was on me. I, I neglected working on the business because I was out raising capital, you know, trying to grow, grow, grow. And then I thought the business, I kind of left it to grow on its own mm-hmm. and it got out of hand very quickly, you know? Hey, guys,
0: Dale here, and I wanted to take a quick break to invite you to join the launch of the Lions Guy community called The Pride. You see, whether it was at work dealing with the demands of the day or maintaining the demands of my life at home, I always seemed to feel like my struggles were unique, like somehow I was the only one struggling to find joy amidst all the weight that I felt I was carrying each day. And, you know, what I've come to realize is that we all have our struggles that we're up against, and it's pretty demanding. The only way to rise to those demands is to decide and make the change to adopt a growth mindset, to be what I call a high performer. And that's why I started Lion's Guide. I want to help you break through to the next level of you and your ability to not only meet but exceed those demands on you and in doing so find your joy again. If you're a growth-minded individual ready to make a change, then I'm here for you. And this is how you get started. I invite you to visit LionsGuy.com and sign up to join the Pride. The Pride is the Lions Guide community for growth-minded members like you. Once signed up, you'll get special access to all the free content and resources I'm putting out there. You'll also be invited to join my live online events where I host sessions on personal growth and high performance. You'll also be able to engage with other growth-minded members on our private online group. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast as a member, you'll get access not only to all the podcasts, but also the podcasts that have been yet to be released. So get access to all this and more. So break out of that rut, break into your next level, and join me on lionsguide.com, and let's grow together. Go to lionsguide.com and become a member of the pride today. Now back to the show. Yeah, no, 100%. We were talking about before we hopped on live here, which was like something I'm passionate about today with my own clients, which is you have all the right passions and desires in the world starting a business but as it grows like you have to grow with it personally you have to grow with it you know as far as your leadership and then you have to grow with it from a business de- i'll say business development aspect where you do work on the business as the business owner uh otherwise like say you're just riding this and bull and you're just trying to hold on you <laughs> know you're just um because yeah. that's the beauty of of creating a business you know in, in itself but it it you have to grow with it, you know, because it just it, it takes a life of its own. It's it's a beautiful piece of art, but it just man yeah. it, it it gets uh, it gets going, man. And it's um you know one of the best things you can do. Um, but you got to grow with it in the right ways. Or so and and just to, so for people who don't understand, like you were uh, getting investment money from what would be private accredited investors, right? So those you don't know, like this isn't like you know throwing your uh, 401k stuff. This is like, you've got to be an accredited investor, which means you're you're making private investments in a private firm like this, um, yep. getting returns. And I guess for the sake of people, and I bring this up because this is a part where there is opportunities as a business owner to do private investments and stuff like that. So for the
1: case of Bellatorum, what did success look like? So like, I'll, I'll give you an example, 2017 and 2018 were extremely successful years. For our investors, you know, you know, we so the way we were structured is we would split the profits 50 50, right? Like we took investor capital and uh, we would buy an asset and flip it. And so then when we flipped it, there were profits to share. Mm-hmm. So we would share those profits, right? And, um, you know, my my 50% went back into the business and growing it and paying the overhead or whatever, right? but the investors got their 50%. So they all both in 2017 and 2018 got all their capital back plus 60% in a year. So annualized 60% returns, you know. Which is huge. Amazing, right? And for me, you know, we kind of alluded to this earlier about the inexperience. I thought, you know, I, I had been in this business since, you know, again, working for somebody else since early 2014. And so I thought, oh, I'd experienced a downturn because 2015 was a, was a severe downturn in oil and gas. And I did well during 2015, you know? So I thought, oh, you know, when people would ask me, well, what's the worst case scenario? I'd be like, well, look, we, I, I survived 20. I did really well in 2015 personally, working for this other company and making commissions and saw what they did. I was like, it was great. Uh, you know, so I, I'm really not scared of a downturn, um, you know, that's blind optimism or whatever you want to call it, or lack of an experience or both, which, you know, the, the blind optimism part, sometimes you have to have that as an entrepreneur, as you know, or, or you'll, you'll kill yourself with anxiety and fret. But, um, but the, uh, you know, that those were extremely successful years. So 60% annualized returns. I thought that was something I could replicate at scale. And, and, and honestly, I think I could have, but not if you neglect codifying systems and processes and the things that, you know, you got to take that time. As you've said several times to work on the business, which I never took the time to step back and say, Hey, what did I do right in 2018 and 2017? Let me put it down on paper so that when I hire new people or onboard new capital, it's done exactly the same way that was successful in the past. So then in 2019, I mean, I basically from January of 2018 to January of 2019 was a 10 X growth, literally, Mm. right? Like 10 X, the capital under management, 10 X, the number of investors, 10 X, the employees, like it was just crazy. Right. So Grant Grant Cardone would have been proud. Yeah. But, but (laughs) not of the, uh, some of the things I neglected. Right. And, Mm. um, and so look, hindsight's always twenty twenty. 20. Um, but when you've built something that you, it was like, wow, this worked. Like why in my mind at the time, it was like, you know, people were like, why did you commit fraud or do what you did? Like, wh- how's that, even, you know, it's easy to say, never lie, cheater, steal, right? You just don't do it no matter what. Well, in my mind at the time I was like. I can't let this thing die overnight just because I made some mistakes. Like I, cause when I found out the mistakes were there, what I would have had to do, I literally still being a new business that I was, I didn't have the, I didn't have the capital in my bank account. That was like my share of the money to use to weather the storm for like payroll. And so I had only a couple of months of, of runway to fix these things. And when, When I didn't fix them in a couple of months, I thought I can just buy myself a couple more months. I can't let this thing die. I can't let my investors down because even like at the time, if I would have sent their money back and said, Hey, I failed guys. I wasn't ready to do this. It still would have meant losses for them. Mm. It would have meant like a 90, uh, sorry, a two and a half percent loss. Hindsight again, being 2020, that's not bad, right? Like you only lose two and a half percent of your investment. You get Ninety-seven and a half cents on the dollar back—that's what I should have done. Was sent their ninety-seven and a half cents per dollar back, right? And said, "Hey guys, I wasn't ready." That also would have required me to lay off all of my employees and just kind of start over from scratch. You know what what was going wrong? Like, what was was happening? So the this business, the the success, right, came from finding off-market deals. Hmm. So it's not like you log in, like when you go out buying houses, if you're a real estate investor, a lot of them just get on Zillow or realtor.com or whatever, and they go find a house for sale and buy it, right? Well, in in the mineral rights space, there's no Zillow of mineral rights. There's no, you got to find off-market deals and you got to do a lot of upfront research and it's got to be accurate. You've got to know who these people are, where they live, what their address is, how much they own there's a lot of upfront due diligence and research that goes into it as we scaled that the part i neglected was making sure that due diligence was being done properly and that the data sets that fed our crm and kind of targets and where we found these off market deals totally collapsed and i didn't generate the deal flow that i had always generated before i was really masterful at generating awesome off market deals before I was actually on a podcast about deal flow and how important it is. Uh, and, and I mean, I really think that was the, the, the kind of Genesis of the whole thing is not having the deal flow because we had the capital, you know, so many entrepreneurs want for capital and capital investment and in dry powder to put into the company or their investment vehicle. I had the capital, and I had the infrastructure in place. I just, I screwed up the, the deal flow system by neglecting it. Cause as we scaled, the data sets got so big and not to bore you with some technical details, but basically Excel crashed, things got corrupted. And the deal flow that came in was just shit for lack of better terms. And so I started buying shit deals. I, it just, it went, I talk about it in my book. I wrote, you know, how I, I did things thinking that, Hey, I'd always like think about making 60% annualized returns. Now you remember I said 60% to my investors, that means I made 120% in 2017 and 2018. So also in my mind at the time I was thinking, all right, fuck, I've I've made such big margins in the past that now, even if I buy these deals, there's still got to be good margin and it just just not as good as I'm used to making. So I was thinking I, about that earlier,
0: because right? I could,
1: I could kind of see
0: in your head a little bit. You're going, well, man, I'm making, yeah, because I, I did the math too, right? It was not sixty was what they were getting, yeah. But that was half of your total return, which is 120 percent return in a year, which is huge. So in your head, you're, you're kind of, you know, telling yourself like, well, heck, man, if it's 50 percent return,
1: or you even know, 30, I would, right? Yeah, that's star, still right? awesome. Yeah, you're still a rock star. Yeah. So so that was also part of my thing is like look I can buy a few of these shit deals they're not what I would have done in 2017 and 2018 and then you know it just I I it's a snowball effect man and I kept doing and you know as they say as they teach you when you're a kid you 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 violate your integrity just a little bit then then it gets more then I was like lying on a financial statement so I could get debt from a you know and it just went I did wrong. Like, I want to make it clear. I was a bad person. I, you know, I, I lied to, you know, and although I wasn't out, you know, doing cocaine and, and, and hookers and whatnot with other people's money, I still lied and and stole. And that's what it boils down to. And some people have, While I appreciate what people say to me. They're like, Hey, Chris, you're not like those guys you, you did it to keep your employees employed and you weren't out, you know, living the good life with, with other people's money, like Bernie Madoff or whoever, you know, the stories you hear, Jordan Belfort, whatever. Um, it still boils down to, uh, I didn't have integrity during a, that period of time I was doing things that were dishonest for whatever the reason was. And you know, the saying, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's, you know, it doesn't matter. And so it's been one of the biggest things I've been you know, talking to my kids about openly now that they're a little bit more mature is like, Hey guys, don't, don't do like me. Like you think if, if you, uh, are ever faced with a situation where you think by lying, you can do something good to save somebody or yourself or your business or whatever. And you think that you're doing it for noble reasons. It doesn't matter. Just don't do it. Period. You know, because it, it, yes, it's, it's like you said, it, it,
0: it, becomes a start and you don't realize it, right? You might think it's like a transactional one-time thing, but the truth of the matter is once you tell that first lie, there's more coming to compensate for that one, you know, mm-hmm. right? Like in minute you start down that path, there there's, at some point you're going to have to start coming clean, right? And it's just how far down that dark path do you get before you hit that realization that you got to start coming clean because otherwise you have to, you, you would have to keep lying and being dishonest to cover up your mistakes for your,
1: for your yeah. whole life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that dude, I don't know if you planned this, if you did, you're a masterful, uh, podcast host and interviewer, but you know that, uh, what you were just saying is like, how did I get to where I am now? I, I, um, uh, I wasn't being investigated. Nobody had turned me into the cops. Nobody knew the extent of anything, what I was doing or knew the D you know, like all all my investors knew is that we were in the pandemic times were tough. They probably had no suspicion that I was doing anything wrong. They, I mean, they probably were like, what were, are we ever going to get our money back or whatever? But you know, I had a, I had a lender that probably had some suspicions, but they didn't, uh, they didn't report me to the cops or, or, um, flat out accuse me of fraud or anything. They just said, what's going on here. It's not, you're not paying your covenants. And we think you lied about, you know, the value of the assets or whatever, but, but they didn't, uh, accuse me of fraud. But, you know, when you were your point earlier about having to lie, 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 like I could have Dale, this is the thing that's, um, I, I don't struggle with it, but I think people do because I was working on a huge um, capital investment that would have made all this. Nobody would have known anything, right? And in order to orchestrate that, I was still having to lie. I was having to go out to these investor meetings and and lie about, hey, we're good. all Everything's awesome. And how I was going to use that money, I was I was getting close to about probably like a hundred million dollar investment, right? And in order to get those meetings and to convince those groups of investors and people involved in that, of course, I, you know, they ask you when you go into capital raising meeting, they you know, what's the state of the company? What's your track record? And while my 2017 and 2018 track record were great, my 2019, 2020 track record was horrible. And you know, I couldn't just say, oh, it's COVID. Just invest your money in me. I promise we'll go back to 2017, 2018, or at least I thought I couldn't do that. So all my capital raising efforts in 2019 and 2020 were, everything's rosy. It's great. I haven't laid off any employees. We've been able to weather the pandemic. And I was, I was getting, you know, traction with this capital raising efforts. And it was going to take a little bit more time. It was uh, early 2021. We were starting to get contracts passed back and forth and and more meetings and it looked like it was going to work. But to your point earlier, I remember thinking when I I went and turned myself in, I, I, I just, the guilt and the pressure of like living this constant lie, looking my wife and kids in the eye, going to Bible study on Sunday and to church and just feeling like the biggest piece of crap, hypocrite. you know, I don't know how other people who committed fraud feel, but I wanted to kill myself. I like literally was suicidal and just couldn't look at myself. And so I thought like, if I get this deal done and I do it, nobody's ever going to know, but that means for the rest of my life, I'll have to lie literally, you know, and I was, I'm 40 years, I'm 41 years old, about to be 42. I have to lie for the rest of my life when people are like, Oh, Chris, you're so great. You're such a great entrepreneur. How'd you do it? Oh, oh hard work and, uh, and an ingenuity or whatever, you know, great. like that's a grit, man grit. Yeah. Right. But <laughs> in my mind, I would always know, well, you want to really know how I got this business to survive the pandemic. I committed fraud. Hmm. Like I, so can you imagine to be, invited to speak in front of a group of any people. Let's say, let's say your alma mater where you graduate college or whatever. And they say, Hey, can you come speak to our business students or whoever class? And, and you're, you're up there talking like you're some guy that's praiseworthy in business. And, and I didn't want to, I could, I like literally envision that. And I'm like, I don't want to live my life like this. I don't want to have this secret in my, in the back of my head for the rest of my life. And so, you know, I, it was, it was two options. It was either literally going to blow my brains out or go turn myself into the feds. And, you know, I went and turned myself into the feds. (laughs) So what made you come
0: clean was just the anxiety of it.
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean the the guilt, the, -hmm. the anxiety, guilt, whatever you want to call it, but it was, it became debilitating. Like Mm -hmm. I was drinking so much every night, uh, Mm -hmm to just not like I would sit out in the backyard and drink a bottle of bourbon on my own and just stare out into space thinking, what, what am I going to do? You know? And, uh, and it got uh, like my, I mean, I was, I'm surprised I'm still married, man. It was, I was working from like four 35 in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. And then coming home at night, my wife, you know, I hadn't, put the kids to bed, they're already in bed and going and grabbing the bottle, a new bottle of bourbon on the way home, walking right out to the, to the backyard, sitting by the the fire pit or whatever. And, you know, just sitting by myself with a bottle. And, um, and I just said, you know, on, on April and early April of 2021, I just said, this is going to suck. I lost my house. I lost every, I, I had, I had levered all my personal assets. And so I moved out. I told my wife, I, she didn't know why I just said, Hey, the business is failing. And I, um, I made a personal guarantee on our house and they're going to take our house. It was paid off, you know? And so the, the, the private hard money lender that loaned me the money that I put into the business. For payroll and whatnot, uh, for the house, they also had a deed that, like, if I defaulted on the loan, they knew they would have been able to take the house. So I just said, "Fuck it, I'm going to move out early." And I told my wife we moved in with my in laws, and um, that's where I am right now at my in laws' house. And uh, and they they were kind enough to give me uh, a room to put my office, and uh, that's where I am right now. But anyway, off the subject of just. That's, that's what happened, man. I just went and said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to go turn myself in. And, um, I did that on, and, uh, so I did it on April 9th of 2021, but I didn't actually physically meet with the FBI and the department of justice until April 13th. So, um, I notified my investors on April 9th of 2021 with a, you know, with a email that told all. And then uh, I had already scheduled the meeting with the feds and kind of told you know, them what was happening and why we needed to meet. And then the meeting happened. And then a few days later, they came to my office and I let them in. It was all scheduled. It wasn't like a raid or anything. All my employees were gone at that point. And uh, they, they took all the computers and I, I literally actually helped them load their car up with all the,
0: right.
1: the evidence.
0: So, so you came clean. You had to send an email to the investors. Like, how are you, how are you explaining yourself to the, like to the investors and to the employees? And I mean, what was the impact, you know, as far as all that's concerned,
1: man, it was, um, there's still a lot of fallout, but the impact that a lot of disbelief, a lot of my investors were friends and family. Um, you know, uh, people I, you know, maybe they weren't friends at first, but they became friends during me, uh you know, the experience of investing with us and coming to the office and going out to dinner and those things that you do when you raise capital, even from, from strangers, right? Like you, you meet people and you develop a relationship with them. And, uh, so I'd become close with some people and, uh, you know, those, those relationships are ruined now, obviously. And, um, so it, there's been a lot of fallout man and the email i sent is it, it actually somebody circulated it on social media like the next that night or the next day and so um you know it's out there i put it in my book the actual email i just copy and paste it into the manuscript of my book so it's there and um you know i wrote that book to try to make restitution because The only person that did okay in this whole deal was the lender. They foreclosed on all those mineral rights assets that we owned. And, uh, you know, while it wasn't their business model to be long-term holders of assets, they didn't, you know, it wasn't their goal to foreclose on them. They at least, they've got some cash flowing assets that to help make them whole, the investors lost everything, you know, because the assets that we were holding, they don't, they no longer have. So they lost their money and, you know, a lot of people are extremely upset about that. I've had some people call me though, Dale, and they're like, "Hey, Chris, I'm not happy about this, but I still love you," and uh, and it's just money. You know, I've had the opposite extreme of that, of like, literally, "I hope you die and go to hell, and you're a horrible person." I can understand that. You know, um, so it's been it's been that full spectrum of. Uh, of responses, but, um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of, of, uh, finding out who your friends are, you know, for real. And I've had some, some, some Marines I served with, you know, kind of snub their nose at me and, and who weren't even affected by this, didn't, didn't invest in me. They just, you know, judge me and say, they don't want to be associated. I've had others reach out to me and really, um you know, be there for me to support me. So it's been, you know, it hasn't been all bad for sure.
0: Right. Sure. I mean, it's, uh, there's things, I guess, good or bad, it, they can be appreciated because I guess, right. Because I guess the point of it is like all the wrongs, uh, you took ownership of them and, you know, y- y- you, know, the wrongs are what they are. Right. But, you know, it, at some point you, Uh, you did the right thing, right. Despite the losses and all that stuff. No, no one's saying the wrongs were right. Or there was an excuse for them or whatever, but, uh, you stopped digging, right? I would say that hell's a, hell's a bottomless pit and right. And, uh, every, you could have kept digging that hole, you know, um, or tried to get away with it or whatever. Um, you know, but
1: what, uh, what should you have done differently? Well, I talked about this, um. You know, so from a technical standpoint, right, I should have, once I realized the magnitude of the deal flow problem, I should have laid all my employees off and told the investors what was going on and offered them a choice. Either I send your money back at 97.5% of what you invested or you guys give me a little time to me and the other, you know, partners or whatever the, the people will, that I could afford to keep around, uh, to help me fix it. And then we start again or just shut the business down, right? Like completely and say, well, it was a good run while it lasted, but it wasn't meant to be. Um, so those are like the technical, right? Like you, those are, those are from a more process. How, what should I have done differently? But you know, the, the the lesson i guess is um i could go back earlier than that from a business standpoint right is like um take the time to work on the business in the early years everything's going well you you think you know you think you don't have the bandwidth you're already busy as hell you don't have time to work on the business because you're in the trenches every day i mean most entrepreneurs have been there and they're like, dude, I don't, I literally have not another minute left in my day. Well, you got to make time, right? Like you got to make time to work on the business and really probably at least once a week, if not one, you know, or at least least once a month, not if not once a week, right. Is what I'm trying to say is like you, Need to take that time to step back and say, let me write this down on paper and literally make a process and a checklist for every little aspect of the business so that when I hire somebody, they're doing it the right way. Not, hey, figure it out as you go. Now I've hired a new employee and didn't really give them any guidance except, hey, just, just log on to the to the website there and do this and that and figure it out, right? Like that's kind of how I was growing because I was so busy. Again, not an excuse, just... But my my guidance to other entrepreneurs would be take the time to work on the business in the early days, you know. Why oh, you can. Yeah. 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 Because it only gets worse. There,
0: you know, you think it's bad now. Until you start working on it, it only gets worse.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's that. And then obviously what I said earlier, right? Like never violate your integrity no matter what. Like I I know it's in the news right now. Right. But I know there's people out there who lied on PPP loan applications. Right. And I'm not judging them. Okay. And I'm not comparing what I did to what they did. I'm just saying that technically they could go to jail for that. They're there. The feds are on a massive roundup of PPP fraud right now. And I would, I would wager that the majority of those people did not want to they didn't have bad intentions of going out and buying a Ferrari with their PPP loan. Like they, in order for them to get approved for their PPP loan, they had to fudge some numbers or say they had more employees than they did or whatever. Right? Like, um, if you were the type of company that paid people 1099 rather than W2, you probably had to lie on, on stump, you know, and, and so anyway, my point is, is just don't do it. Like there's people out there and I, I will tell you the, the cut, like going to jail is the least of my worries right now. Like I, I know I'm going to jail. Pro- oh, I, I assume that I am. I shouldn't say I know I am, but I assume that I am. Uh, but that that's almost like a vacation from all this other shit I'm dealing with. And I mm-hmm. would caution entrepreneurs that, you know, lying on a bank loan, whether it's a PPP loan or a regular one is fraud and it's a felony offense and you, you will give up your right to vote, your, your right to own firearms, which you may not care about if you're from certain areas of the country or whatever, but you know, uh, I care about those things. I I'm a patriotic American and, and then there's the relationship fallout. There's, you know, there's the, ki- the being away from kids, you're your, your personal relationships, your professional relationships, your reputation, your ability to get a job. Like, you know, I'm not saying my life is ruined. I, I think I can come back from this, but um, again, prison time is the least of my worries right now. After being in the Marines, I'm not worried about being told when and when I can go to the bathroom and take a shower. I've been through that before, you know, but uh, and, and what, what I'm allowed to eat and not eat, but, um, the other stuff is, is going to suck really bad, you know? Yeah.
0: The, uh, I mean, I guess we talked earlier with the Marine Corps transformation, like how has this
1: transformed you as a person? You know, um, it's definitely given me, um, it's given me uh, some new perspectives Dale, uh, you'll appreciate this being a Marine yourself. Um, you know that that saying failure is not an option. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the biggest horseshit statement ever because now look, it sounds good in a halftime motivational speech from Vince Lombardi or whoever, right? But um but failure has to be an option because if it's not, it means you're willing to do whatever lie cheat steal kill whatever right mm-hmm. in order to not fail and that you know what is it going to be either either if those are your only options failure or no integrity or doing something horrible you're gonna pick the horrible thing because failure is not an option no like you've got to be willing to fail and you got to know when the writing is on the wall and when it's time to say you know what let me live to fight another day i'll lose the battle i'll fail today so that i win at life you know what i mean and um that i think i was so had that failure is not an option mentality ingrained in me to where i know now going forward i'll never make that mistake again to where it's like you know and and i want to be clear i'm not saying just quit at the first sign of challenge because oh it's okay to fail Like you got to take that statement I made with nuance. Obviously you face challenges, you, you overcome obstacles, whatever. But when, when you're now faced with, okay, there's no other option, but failure or cheating or fraud or whatever, something horrible to get to the success, you can't, you know, you got to decide who you are in that moment. And I know I've decided for the rest of my life, I'll never, choose success over my integrity you
0: know right yeah i mean it it fail with your integrity intact like that's how you live to fight another day you know and yeah in in this type of situation because you know like you said if you would have come clean early and just said look sorry two percent loss hey but hey look last year 60 percent. you know look it of times let's regroup when things change circumstance change or or whatever but now, you know, there's so much tr- trust lost, you know, trustworthiness, like the things that that take a lifetime to build, you know, that, you know, certainly now there's a big, uh, big challenge with that in a lot of ways, you know, as opposed as opposed to just just saying, look, just fail. Well, right. You know, just yeah. Just fail well,
1: yes, that's, uh, you know, and, and it's it's something you uh, you hear sometimes. Right. But I think. I'm hoping my story will serve as a, as, you know, a warning or an example or whatever you want to call it, both of of other entrepreneurs in the future so they can look back to this and say, all right, let me not make the same mistake Chris made and let me realize that this is the time to, you know, to fail with my integrity intact and live to fight another day rather than to keep clawing it, you know, the potential success and, and sacrificing, uh, you know, your values, your morals, uh, to get there is, it, it shouldn't be an option. And, 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 you know, you think it, you think that it's an easy choice when you're from the outside looking in, oh, I would never do that. Right. Well, it, you know, you can get blinded, you can get tunnel vision. And so I'm asking for people who are listening and for those that read my book is just, you gotta be, you gotta remember this story, man. Cause it's, it's easy to do. I, I, you know, believe what you will, but I was not a person. I wasn't a fraudster, or a scammer. I wasn't out. I didn't ever had the intent to go defraud people. And so, uh, and I think most human beings don't, you know, most business people don't, but when, when times get tough and you think, oh, you're going to have to, there's no other option than, you know, you might be right. There's no other option, but the option is failing. Right. And, uh, and it's not as bad as you think it'll be because, right. you know, looking back now, going back to the workforce or laying everybody off and just being a company of one again, whatever the situation would have ended up looking like, it'd look a lot better than it does now. That's sure. for sure. Right.
0: Know? Yeah, 100%. So where, where do you go from here?
1: Where, where do things stand and what's next for you? Well, I'm, you know, I'm awaiting, uh, I, I've been charged with wire fraud uh, formally now. Um, I'm waiting on the court date for like official plea and sentencing and all that. It's, it was supposed to be this Friday, the the 23rd, it got postponed. I don't know why I didn't request it for it to be postponed, but anyway, I'm waiting to hear, I have a meeting with a federal public defender next week and then we'll figure out when the next court date's going to be, but hopefully sooner than later. Uh, if I get sentenced to prison I'll go serve that time, hopefully it's not, you know, anything extremely long, you know, I hope selfishly like I, you know, it's like, I I don't know what's right for the investors, me to go serve a long sentence or to do more to where I can earn restitution. You know, I obviously can earn restitution better if I'm out, but I also, I want the investors to feel like they got justice and I don't know what that looks like or what it means to them. But, um, you know, so that's what's next. And I'm kind of in limbo or purgatory, if you will, right now, until the legal system decides what they're going to do with me.
0: Right. Right. Um, and I guess, you know, as far as it's concerned, you, so you wrote a book about all this,
1: tell us a little bit about the book where people can find it. And yeah, it's on Amazon and audible. I got a, a copy right here. It's called burning bellatorum. Um, the story of a $40 million fraud and it's priceless lessons for Investors and entrepreneurs. It's a long title. You can leave the subtitle out. So, Burning Bellatorum. It's on Amazon, and 100% of the proceeds go towards restitution. I've sold about 220 copies to date. All that money. It's not a lot of money. It's you know, I get about um, five, six dollars a book. You do the math. But I haven't touched it. And believe me, right now, that money would help me out a great deal. But I, I mean it. It's 100% going to investors. I'm also working on some speaking engagements and any money made from those speaking engagements will also go towards the investors restitution so hopefully uh you know it can become an international bestseller and uh and it can make everybody whole that's the goal Sure. yeah no man and, and chris i
0: like i said I, i'll say it again man i appreciate you kind of one the courage to come clean you know despite the the hole you had dug as far as it was it, yeah right the cur it took even more courage for how deep it got. Right. So it took a mountain of courage just to fail the first time and it just got to where it got. And, you know, I I think, you know, you do deserve the, the nod for, you know, facing kind of how deep and dark the situation got and and coming clean, you know, at all, right. Or, or, you know, owning it and, and, you know, so on. And especially to take it and, and put in the be already putting in the work you are to kind of try to make it right. You know, you know what was wrong and you know what you want to do all everything in your capability to try to make it right. So, so I, I respect you for that, man, you know, despite, you know, you're not a bad person. You, you, you made a bad mistake, right? So,
1: yeah. (laughs) yeah, I appreciate it, Dale. I really do. I appreciate the opportunity to come on your show, man. And I really, I'm a fan too. So, uh, keep up the awesome content, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, So, otherwise, if someone wants to reach out to you again or find the book, what 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 would they do? Yeah, just look. I'm really active on LinkedIn, as you know. That's the main social media platform I do. Uh, So, look me up on LinkedIn, and um, it's on Amazon and Audible. So, if you just search "Burning Bellatorum" on Amazon or Audible books, uh, you'll find it there. Good to go, man. Well, look, Chris, I appreciate you
0: coming on again, telling your story. I think this is it's had a ton of value, right? It's, it's not all, you know, rainbows and, and butterflies, you know, starting your own business, right? There, there are some pitfalls and I, and I appreciate you, you know, being candid and transparent and sharing your story. And, uh, you know, it's definitely going to help some folks out there, you know, avoid, avoid
1: mistakes or whatever. So thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks again, Dale. All right. Thanks, Chris. Talk to you soon. All right. Cheers. Cheers.